Yo, this episode of Bass Freaks is brought to you by Dunlop Super Bright Bass Strings. Dunlop Super Bright Bass Strings put your sound front and center with a bright yet musical top end, balanced fundamental, and a warm low end. Designed from the ground up to fit the vision of what a string should be, Super Bright Bass Strings provide a superior response that allows the natural voice of your bass to come through. Made in California at Dunlop headquarters, go to jimdunlop.com and check out Super Bright Bass Strings. Alright, what's up my friends? Welcome to Dunlop Presents Bass Freaks. This is a place for us bass freaks to uh, chat it up, gain a little insight and inspiration and have some fun with some great bass players. I'm your host Josh Paul and today we welcome Justin Melville Johnson to the show. J&J, what's up dude? How are you man? Good. It's nice to see you. I wish we were doing this in person, but doing it this way and seeing you this way is is, is nice regardless. We're so close yet we can't touch, but that's okay. I know. Uh, virtual high fives, man. Soon, soon yeah, enough. Um, so, where are you now? Oklahoma City, um, in the in the the center, the center of the American universe. How is it? It's cool, actually. Um, I've I just spent four days in Austin just previous to this, doing like, you know, ACL, the ACL TV taping, another gig, and. Uh, and a gig in Dallas and you know those feel like the big city compared to this even though Oklahoma City is like a big city we rolled in yesterday for a day off and it's it's just really calming it's really calming because there's just uh it's quiet and uh, it's kind of nice to after you do four shows in a row to um have a little quiet stop but the show tonight apparently is going to be a, a good one I mean in spite of COVID um you know, people are coming to shows and um, filling up the rooms, and it's it's pretty cool. That's amazing. So you're out right now with Saint Vincent, and you're out as a MD, musical director, and um, bassist, right? Yeah, I, I play bass. I'm the MD. I put the the band together, and I also play synth. So that's my job with uh, with this scenario. That's a lot of work. <laughs> So when is the last time you were actually out on tour and how does it feel to be back out? Um, me, I mean, I, I'm sort of an anomaly. I've been, I've been making records as a producer for so long that it's been over five years since I've toured. The last tour I did ended in April of 2016. So what's that five and a half years um, with Beck. And since then, all I've done live wise is like some random one-off shows with Beck and a few shows with this band called the bird and the bee. That's really hip. Um, it's, it's Greg Kirsten's band and the singer, uh, Inara George. And the two of them had this band that they've done for a while. And, um, they're kind of known for very, very clever, like highly orchestrated pop, but also these two albums they made, um, um, which are covers albums, like a tribute album, one to Hall & Oates and one to Van Halen. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, they're sort of all about like like great, great songwriters that are overlooked as being great, great songwriters. And so they they did this homage to both of those artists. And the I, I played bass on the Van Halen one with Joey Warnker on drums, and it, it's really sick, actually. And and then we did some shows to support it uh, with Dave Grohl playing drums and Wow. And uh, some other shows as well. And and so that was cool. Did that sporadically over the past, I don't know, three years. Right. In, in fact, right up until the pandemic started, we were doing some of those shows. Um, but yeah, touring like in a bus, it's been ages, five and a half years. I mean, I'm mostly a studio rat at this point. Um, and I, I really, really wanted to change that because for me, um, the road is kind of more more my natural habitat, to be honest. And you're feeling all right. Tell let let's talk about the typical uh, day on tour. Give us a or on one of your tours that you're on. Wake up on on the bus. Um, crawl out of there <laughs> like a like a primordial creature trying to escape the, 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 the pond and, and go on to land. That's kind of how it feels, you know, like a, like a, like a prehistoric 
lizard crawling <laughs> out of there, open the bus door, look at the sunlight. <laughs> you know, <laughs> again, and then crawl into a, a hotel day room, um, get a shower and change, and 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 um, and then it's like, where can I find some food and some like, in my case, like tea or uh, most everyone else coffee, like immediately, and then you know, go do that, hook that up, and then uh, and then and then you know, maybe we have a couple of hours and in those couple of hours, I'm really busy because like I have a record back at my studio that's still ongoing. Oh, wow. Um, and it's being, it's being mixed. So I'm like listening to reference mixes and giving notes and helping the thing kind of move along while I'm out here and, and answering millions of emails kind of surrounding that project. And then sound check, sound check, you know, and I'm since I'm the MD, I'm kind of running it. And then uh, Annie Clark, who's you know, AKA Sam Vincent, she comes in at a certain point. And we do some songs with her involved. And because it's still sort of early days, there are some things we're still like kind of hashing out with the show and with the band. So we'll get into that um, Sonics parts, whatever. And then, um, and then after Soundcheck, it's kind of like finally there's some chill time and we eat and we start up the backstage music and get hype and put on fun clothes and and then do the show man and then you know the only real difference to all this is we're wearing masks everywhere uh except when we're on stage right and I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's the same for you absolutely yeah and then and then we do the show and then there's no after show <laughs> <laughs> Right, there's no any, hang. There's no hang. There's nothing going on. <laughs> Are there any must-haves that you uh, need out on tour? Keep keep you rolling, hanging tough. Um, my big ass UE boom like speaker, like loud ass speaker for backstage. Because <laughs> <laughs> okay. I like to play. Yeah, um, I like to play punk rock for like a good ninety minutes before we play. Like you know, right, what do you what do you get? Hype. What are some of the jams you you've been rocking to? Oh man, um, the Buzzcocks, Wire, Gang of Four, um, even just classic Pistols, but also like you know the Damned and Black Flag, Dead Kennedys, Circle Love Jerks, it. Adolescents, Descendants, um, uh, Chromags, uh, like. Um, uh, minor threat, like just t- bad brains, just tons and tons of like early hardcore. That, that's love it. A real love of mine, you know. And and so for me, it's and and some of my bandmates as well. It's like a really nice way to get yourself going. You know? Absolutely, I love all that music. Yeah. And, and actually, um, with I'm a Robot, you, I mean, that's pretty punk rock, right? Your own project. Are you still work doing that at all, or? I'm a robot always threatens to bubble up and come back. Yeah. Um, we have been talking about reissuing the first album. Um, oh, cool. And I'm a robot is a real strange one, man, because it's one of the only bands that I've ever heard of where all five original members are totally cool with each other. <laughs> right. All, okay. all still making music without any exceptions. And, um, just like friendly and What's like the secret. Oh, the secret is that we broke up. Ah, uh. meaning there's 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 a time to end bands, you Got know. It. Okay, and and a lot of times I feel people go too long before they end a band that maybe isn't meant to stay together you know, with, with conflicting interests and stuff. And so I, I think with a band like that, there was a benefit to, I was the first one to leave. And then, and, well, actually Joey Warner was the first one to leave then, then myself and then, and then so on and so forth. And I think that that's healthy. It was just kind of healthy. And so we're all just really love and appreciate each other a lot. That's great. I mean, yeah. you can't really ask for anything more than that. No. It means if it means if we want to someday, maybe we could play a show or I don't know. I mean, or just maybe we'll get together at my house and go for a swim and hang out and tell stories. 
I don't know. It doesn't really matter. It's nice. You know, I, I'm one of these people that sort of thrives on the idea that bands and artists, um, should cultivate a little bit. I don't want to say the word mystery, but a certain sense of not being always so accessible and over available to the public. I think that there's a certain value to music artists having some distance at times from their fans so that mm. they can create surprise and all this access I think is really overrated. I think it, it creates um, hom homogenized music and sometimes a situation where the romance is, is not there. The romance of like, how do I find out about remember? I mean, you remember all the, all the shit we used to, we used to read fanzines. Yeah, for sure. There was a mystique, you know, and yeah. a, and a wonder, um, about your favorite rock star, your favorite band that, Oh, I wonder what they're going to do next instead of, you know, now everything is, you're right. Everything is, is, accessible and it's right there and everybody wants to tell you exactly what they're doing right before it happens or a year before it happens so that and I understand that on a on a business level but there's still a cool factor to the mystique for sure and and I agree that it definitely does hinder some um um organic creativity yeah that's how I feel. Uh, it's, I don't know. It's just why it's my taste. I mean, I'm old, so maybe it's just I'm a, from a lost generation, but like for me, when I first found out about say the Cocteau twins, I was like, okay, first of all, what language is she singing in? <laughs> Cause I don't know what the hell that is. Number two, <laughs> number two, that, 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 that's the most amazing guitar sound I've ever heard in my life. How does he get it? Well, yeah. guess what? It was 1984. There was no like rig rundown. Right. There was no like, you know, um, Liz Frazier, you know, doing Instagram stories every day of her singing tracks in the studio, right. you know, <laughs> it, and, and on plus the album covers and the artwork were inscrutable. They were very, there was their images were never on them. There was no liner notes. It was all very, you know, cold and and distant and but that's just romantic as hell to me i thought i find that mystique like all it made me want to do is love them more and hold them as my own private experience right that's uh that's a great way to look at it it's some awesome insight on that especially i mean um it's very cool Speaking of which, you you are very cool. Your vibe is awesome, not only in your playing, but I mean, just your style um, and your style of production. Uh, before we get into that, though, how do you manage <laughs> your time? Because between now touring and producing so many records and um, family life, um, how are you doing it? How do you find space for yourself? I don't know that I'm busier than anyone else of my peers. I don't know that I'm busier than you. Um, I, I think that my, my type of busyness is like having always having a record on the boil and then some other project, be it songwriting or um, maybe doing sessions as a bass player, which I still love to do. And I, and I will do with the drop of a hat because it keeps me sharp and I need it. Um, and I'll do it for, you know, any compensation because it, it, like, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm, I'm not, um, inclined to turn something down that I like if it's, um, for instance, uh, doesn't it just, you know, it pays whatever a hundred bucks a song. Like I, I, like I'll still do it, you know? Cause I like That's it. Amazing. That's, um, you just love what you do. 
I love what I do. Money is not um, an important thing for my life. Um, it's not a, 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 a guiding principle or a touchstone for me. Money is um, incidental and it's the only way I can look at it. Otherwise, I think it's kind of poisonous. Um, but to answer your question more directly, and by the way, thanks for the like really um, generous compliment. I don't know if I can live up to everything you're saying, but thank you very uh, much for I that. Mean, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm being uh, 100% honest. Um, I've been a fan for a long time. So, And by the way, I appreciate you coming on here and taking the time to do it. Dude, my absolute pleasure. And thank you. That's great. Um, yeah, I mean, I... I I, the, the thing is, is that I, people are, are sometimes wondering, they're like, oh, yeah, you're you're like playing and you're producing and you're writing and whatever. The thing is, is as a producer, first of all, I'm kind of slow as a producer. I'm not a I'm not a guy who bangs out a lot of records every year. Um, the most number of records I've ever recorded in a year is four. Um, the typical amount of records that I've recorded in a year is two. And it's because I am a real sonic explorer. And I'm also pretty old school. And so I like to take a lot of time in the overdub phase, mainly. I like to record things in basic tracks, real bang, bang, and do that quickly in, in days. But I like to do the other part in weeks and weeks and what ends up being months. Um, and and uh, I don't know, it's not really a viable way to make records, but it's the way that I do it and I somehow make it happen. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'm, you know, I, in the studio, I like my days are like 10 hour days. And then the rest of the time is family time. I have two kids. I'm married. Um, and then, you know, I get up early um, and I hit the day hard and I answer all my communication really quick. So it doesn't linger. And so I don't get an inbox that's stacked and, you know, then I can't confront it later. And, um, I don't know. My mantra is just like, you know, if it's, if it's in front of you, get it done right now. Mm. Um, don't, don't, um, procrastinate if you can. And, um, I don't know. I'm just a spaz. I don't know. I like to be busy. Um, <laughs> no secrets. <laughs> oh man. That's, that's great. That's great. I mean, it's, it's, it's the way to just dive in and get it done. Um, um, if, uh, let's talk a little bit about creating, uh, baselines. How do you approach that? Because you've, uh, some of the recordings that I've heard you do have been just killer, killer, killer. Uh, 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 sex laws for one by Beck. God, it's so funny. That one always comes back around to me. Sex laws. Um, I, I just, I just well, love, I, because the, I, I want to hear what your approach was and your thought was while you're doing it. But when I listen to it, I'm just like, wow, that is a perfect blend of sort of old Motown meets just kind of modern cool with a little bit of a spin on it. And it, it just was the right thing. So the mandate from Beck on that song was the sex laws has this bizarre thing where it's like a boogaloo track. It's like JB style, like really like up tempo, up, up, up tempo funk, like Apollo theater kind of funk, you know? Yeah. Almost church, almost church kind of vibe, like as in like sixties church, you know? Uh -huh. um, and so it has that as a more obvious aesthetic disposition but what what the undercurrent is is that it's also colliding with like um chicken pink and like country uh, vibe in it and you can hear it in the banjo yeah and and uh, and the steel that's in there but we, when we were trying bass lines eventually he was like can you do something that's like a what would it be if bootsy was in a country band or something <laughs> And, um, and I said like Bootsy parliament Bootsy. And she, he's like, no, 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 no. Like old, like Bootsy, like James Brown Bootsy, like, you know, um, three sets a night up tempo, you know, dance band, like hardest working band and show business vibe, you know? Yeah. And, and so, you know, it moves along in a good clip. I don't know how fast sex laws is. I think it's in the one thirties or 
or something. I don't know, but it's, it's quick. And the 16th notes are going by real quick. And, um, so I just, I, I don't know, man, I'm just, um, I'm an instinctual person. I don't, I'm not really a crafty, um, baseline creator. I tend to react, um, on in the moment in a very, um, naive kind of way. Like I don't, I'm not really thoughtful cause I'm not trained. I'm not, you know, I'm not a studied musician. Um, so my, all my, all my influence comes from my musical bibliography. It comes from my record collection, from okay. what I was listening to being a kid. My parents played me because they were just big music heads all the way up until now. And I'm an even bigger music head. So for me, it's, 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 um, it's like always somehow just a distillation of my super wide musical taste, not from a standpoint of craft. It's not a crafted thing. So that sex laws thing came out real quick. We recorded it in half an hour and, um, it was just like a reaction. Yeah. And then there's like the, there's like a, the second verse is like this real hyper thing. I was just, I'm always at certain times, like, how do I emulate a synth bass or a sequence? It's always like a fun angle to my playing. Like, how do I, how, how would I, how, how do I play if I'm like trying to be a craft work baseline? You follow? Yeah, I do. Like that's, yeah. that's a, that's a real focus for me. Uh-huh. And so I've, de- I've developed a very like rigid right hand, like picking style or, fi- or fingering style. That's very like, um, I don't know if like if like Rocco from Tower of Power was in craft work or something like a, that's like maybe how I how I look at it. Interesting. OK. Yeah. yeah. Some of the syncopation in there is uh, so great. Yeah. So <laughs> Thanks. Do you do you I know you mentioned you're not a quote unquote studied bass player, um, but do you read music at all? A little bit only by virtue of years and years. I mean, I read charts all day. Okay. Charts yeah. are fine, but notation yeah. I'm slow at. I can read it though. Yeah. So, but that came from like playing clarinet in junior high and high school or whatever. Oh, very cool. Um, yeah. So I just like parlayed that later into bass clef and kind of figured it out, but I'm not a fast reader. I'm a slow reader, but I can read. Um, I've had some scary gigs where I've had to read before, like terrifying. I can't even imagine, uh-huh. man. I, I, that... It, if I have, well, I have many weaknesses, but uh, reading for me is just very frightening. I, I, it takes me forever. <laughs> Sam, <laughs> big time, man. I got oh. to tell you, I got to tell you an anecdote about that if I can. Please. Can I tell you a little story? Yeah, please. Um, so I was hired to play bass for the new version of the Muppet movie, which was about like, what, 10 years ago or whatever. I remember that. It was like that very charming. Yeah. And so the, the session was George Deering, who's the most recorded guitar player in film. Wow. Bar none. Okay. And and he plays not just guitar. He plays like any, any string guitar-shaped instrument. He plays like, you know, lutes and banjos and mandolin and, you know, all kinds of different stuff. He's like a phenom. Um, and he's, again, he, in Hollywood, you know, no one's played on more films than that guy um jim cox on piano kind of this the similar vibe and these guys like read up and down all day long sideways backwards whatever (laughs) and joey warnaker on drums so joey and i you know who are the rhythm section for beck on all the beck's classic albums um were hired sort of together as like a unit and we we have been historically hired a bunch as a as a unit because we play well together. We've done a lot of records together with Beck, but also with many other artists. And that's by the way, that's just a little aside. I that's I pulled him into Ivor Robot. He was the first drummer for Ivor Robot. Um, anyway, we're in there. We're at what was then called Oceanway Studio A, which is now called United Recording on Sunset in Hollywood. And, you know, the producers there and the music supervisors there and the composers there and the, the engineers there and the music editors there and some other random people that look like they're just, I don't know, people on a, some kind of committee. I don't know what the hell, but they were scary. Anyway. <laughs> committee people are scary. 
to, to people like you and me, they yeah, are scary. Yes, for sure. <laughs> so I get there and the the guy who's my buddy, Mickey Petralia, who's who's sort of the de facto producer of the sessions, is sort of like, oh, it'll be chill. Don't worry, but I got you. It, like it, everyone's super cool, like whatever. I get there, man, and it's like, you know, it's fly shit on on paper. It's dense. It's very, very very dense oh, and there's pay, there's scores that are like um 10 pages long taped across three music stands oh and they're all night, there and that's my to, that's have... my nightmare <laughs> really <laughs> ah, no i can't swim <laughs> i hear you yeah. i i you know, just like any of us, there have been moments in my life and music where you have to fake it till you make it, right? There are right. moments like that. Yes. And that was the moment for me. That was the moment. And I'm playing this stuff and I'm kind of hanging in there, but I'm sweating, man. And I'm, I'm, oh my God, I do the first one. It was like two pages and they're like, um, yeah, good guys. That was great. So, hey, Justin, I think we got to go back and punch a couple of things. I was like, yeah, 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 cool, cool. <laughs> so they're grabbing me. I'm punching some stuff. And then the second one, um, I read the whole thing wrong. I read the whole thing. I, I I lost my perspective and I was really on the on the spot and I lost my perspective and I was reading the whole thing like down a half step and they're like a different cleft. I had I had trouble or I was a whole step or a half step off. And they started it and they kept starting and they're like, uh, Justin, are you okay? Let's, let's try that again. <laughs> and then for then the third time they try it once they try it twice. Then the third time I kind of get it. And then I stumble on the second or third bar and I'm, I'm like finally starting to orient myself. And then Jim Cox, the piano player, I hear him in his booth. He's tucked away in a booth and I hear him kind of scream at me like, Justin, it's an E flat. <laughs> I'm like, Oh yeah. Sorry, man. Sorry. I'm like, like, he really lost his temper. It was kind of inappropriate. Actually. He like kind of screamed at me. Wow. Um, but, and that just added to like, it was a really brutal session, but guess what? By the end of the session, I got it all and, and they kept it all. And huh. with a few fixes, I was okay. And, and it was really, really tough, man. It was just fucking really tough. Um, <laughs> but then there's other like things like I played based on the movie, like oceans 11 and oceans 12 or one, one of those. And that, that was like me just basically aping old records and stuff. And that, that, that was just, that was the basic charts, but mainly just like playing along the old records and, and read, you know, so, so film, film was always really tricky because it's either like a lot of notes or it's like super react, reactive and easy and more just instinctive, you know, gotcha. but that story I tell you because it's sort of a cautionary tale. Like don't say you can read right. if you can't really read because those people <laughs> on that session can really read. You know? uh, I would have gone to my car and cried, cried for at least an hour. <laughs> I, I left there. I, I left there with my clothes were like essentially wet, bro. Oh like with, with sweat. <laughs> that is crazy. Well, I'm glad. And, and I'm sure it turned out amazing. Oh my gosh. Um, who are some of your, your speaking of, you know, your record collection, um, who are some of your influences? as a bass player? Um, they're kind of all over the shop, man. I have a weird mix because I'm such an omnivore of music. I don't, I don't really stay in one lane. Right. Uh -huh. But like, um, I, I'd say my number one is probably Peter Hook. Nice. Um, I'm a, big joy division and new order fan and i love them actually equally by the way a lot of like real heads are like oh no it's just joy division bro and i'm like no i'm, <laughs> I'm a big new order person um it's like kids i you can't just love one more than the other yeah um i really love um uh i love jamerson even though i can't really ever play anything quite like him he's always been influential of course um uh i would say mccartney mm. and these are just because they're my earliest musical 
exposures. Um, and I listen, I would always fixate on the bass. Um, uh, Aston, family man, Barrett. Oh know? yeah. Oh yeah. Um, he's always been a big influence. Robbie Shakespeare, uh, Daryl Jennifer from bad brains. Um, uh, uh, dude from the descendants. Is that Carl Alvarez? Is that who uh, that was? I'm not sure. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, Dave Allen from gang of four. Oh, cool. Um, uh, I'm looking up the bass player for the descendants. It hey, was, man. yeah, it was Carl Alvarez called Carl Alvarez. That was the guy. Okay. Um, I love him. Um, uh, I would say Graham Lewis from the band wire because he's such a creator and a weirdo like tonally and <laughs> approach wise. I like, I like people like that who are very non-traditional and, you know, every time they play the instrument, they're almost trying to dismantle it and you can hear oh, them yeah. pulling it apart in their, in their mind and they're not structured. And I uh, just love that. I, I love like, people like that. I do too, man. You know, um, also like really legendary old school session cats like Dave Richmond, who played on all the, the Serge Gainsbourg um, albums. Um, Joe Osborne. Oh yeah, Joe. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's that's a little slice of some people that I've always referred to for sure. All 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 great, all huge influences for me as well for the most part. Tina 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 Weymouth. Oh yeah. Oh, I, yeah. How can I forget her? She's she's really in my top five to be honest. So Tina's Tina's big for me. Um. So yeah, there you go. Awesome. Uh, I want to get into um gear in a second. But um, yeah, your uh, work as a producer is is very awesome as well. I was I think I tweeted you years ago when it came out, but um, the Paramore record that you produced, the first time I heard that, uh, I was like, that's got to be a bass player that produced this because the, <laughs> the, everything just sits like it should. At least coming it, it, me listening to it. So uh, kudos to you on that. Um, but how do you think that um, being a bass player informs your production or well, vice versa? I, I don't I don't really know. Um, I, it's 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 a hard one for me to answer. Um, I, I know it does. Yeah, because it's natural, but. I don't really know in what ways it manifests. It's almost up for other people who listen to the music to tell me how it does. Um, but like on that, on the Paramore, are you referring to the, the after laughter record that came out about four years ago? Is yeah. that the album you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause that's the one, that's the one I ended up being the bass player on as well. Oh really? Um, okay. Cool. Yeah. Cause the first, the first Paramore album I produced, which is, a self-titled one. It's just called Paramore. Yeah. That has like that song, ain't it fun on it and stuff yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. That's Jer that's Jeremy Davis. Who's, who was the original bass player. That's right. him playing bass. Right. Um, uh, the, the, him and the band parted ways. And then I ended up being the bass player on, on after laughter, which is the more recent one. Anyway. Um, you, you produced I, it though as well, right? That one. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Good yeah, job, man. yeah. I produced it and played bass and did my usual thing where I'm usually playing a lot of synths and stuff too. Yeah, um, it's very cool. I mean, and the approach is there's just a a coolness to it that it could have gone a different way. I think um, maybe a little. I don't, I don't know how to describe it. It's just a it's sort of alt indie type of hmm. approach to it that really shines through i'm not i'm not sure how to describe it but i can hear it well it was well that's great i mean the thing the thing with that album is that i was i was confronted with a band that was having a big seismic shift in their frankly their style okay. um i mean you know they were they were exploring almost like 80s funk funk influence like pop production in a way in terms of their like in in some songs i heard a demo form almost sounded like it could have been like a old school like 
you know, Janet Jackson, like a, like a, um, um, who are the dudes that like produced all the like really big, like new Jack Swank Terry, records? Uh, Terry, Terry, uh, Lewis, Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. It, like some of the original demos I had heard that preceded after laughter were almost influenced by that genre. And, and I love that. I, it was stuff, surprising to me. Yeah. That's dope. I, I think it's great. And I think it, it frankly, it's finally getting its due. Um, people are referring to it more and more because it is truly genius. Yeah. Um, but the Paramore people, the guys were like, um, uh, Taylor York and Haley Williams. They were, they were ready for change and they were writing it that way. And, um, a lot of people when that album came out were sort of like, man, you really changed their sound, but actually I didn't change their sound. I documented their sound. Huh. Um, That's a great way to put and it. I helped them. I just, you know, I wasn't, I'm not, I'm not there to like, you know, make them different. They, they were ready for it. They were, they were very decisive and clear about what they wanted to do. And their demos were fully fleshed out for instance. And so, um, I just, I, I would know like, Oh, how do I get some of that feeling? Like part of, part of the bass's role in that album is to be like this thing that finds key moments and then gets out and then jumps into key moments and gets out. It's like not, um, it's rhythmically very jagged. It's jagged. It's not smooth. It has like a, it's smooth, but it's not. It's like it jumps in and out at weird moments and it's quite syncopated, very syncopated. Um, and that was sort of the influence. It was that, it was that, you know, like if you listen to something like, I don't know, like early, like Janet, um, Rhythm Nation or, control, you know, Control yeah. or like, um, or, um, uh, or, like the great Scritti Politti record, Cupid and Psyche 85, which is that um, um, very, very minute, jagged kind of funk, a pop funk where like everything has its place, but it's all really interpolated and kind of all somehow arrives at, the, at a nice cohesive thing. But if you soloed one thing, it'd be like, but, but, you know, but, yeah, but yeah. then somehow, but, but it's, it, it interpolates really well and it becomes this beautiful, like irresistible, like flow, you know? Yeah. Can't um, help but smile. That was the, you can't help but smile when you hear that stuff. You know, yeah. I was listening to that, like that song, Perfect Way by Screedy Palladi. I was listening to that the other day. I was like, my God, is there any more masterful pop from the eighties than this? I, I don't know. Um, and, uh, that was part of the ethos. The other part of it was like, you know, being influenced by things like gang of four and television and talking heads, a lot of like post-punk. And um, so that, putting all that stuff together, that's what made that Paramore thing come to life. And as, as when it was time for me to just play bass, um, I sort of have to pat my head and rub my stomach, at, you know, because I'm running the session and I'm playing the bass and I'm watching everyone else's take and it was recorded live by the way. Oh, so, really? Like, oh, awesome. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It was, it was done as a band um, with me kind of, yeah. with me kind of shoehorned in there. And, and Zach, the, the drummer who's an utterly phenomenal talent has his own sophistication and taste that he was bringing in too. So anyway, point is it's just kind of like, um, I, yes, I'm, I'm, playing bass from a producer's vantage point in that I'm trying not to overplay. But on the other hand, that record does have a lot of what some people might characterize as overplaying because actually that was the mission. It's very syncopated. Yeah. So that's the mandate, you know, like if the mandate is to play real low key and have the bass be almost just part of the concrete underneath the whole thing. Great. But I'm pretty flexible. If it needs to be more hyper like that Permore album, then that was, that was what it needed. Awesome. Um, you're, you are versatile and you, you definitely play, um, from what I've heard, what is right. So that's amazing. You think producing oh, bands is uh, much different than producing an artist? 
Yes, mainly because when I'm producing a band, I feel like I have to worry about less. I feel like I can do a lot of pre-production to get things to a nice point. And then in a way I, I can zoom out and have a bigger picture listen. And I don't really have to like worry about how someone's doing the job because presumably I've done my job and prepared them before we're burning studio time. And there's been enough pre-production to where everyone knows their parts, everyone knows what instrument they're going to use, and within you know some parameters of change, but you know basically they know, right? Right. And and so you 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 presume that as a producer, especially like a more old school minded producer like myself, that when you're going in there, all that stuff's kind of laid out and known before you're spending their money. Yeah. Um. So because of that when I'm producing an artist, it doesn't work that way because I'm usually like working with either other people I'm hiring as session musicians or it's very skeletal and I'm playing everything. So okay. I can't zoom out. I'm always zoomed in. I feel like I always have to focus on this minutia because I'm not really capturing a performance right. as much. Okay. I'm assembling things piecemeal. Um, or even when I'm not and I'm hiring a band, to be a, like hiring musicians to be the band. I'm still really hyper-focused because they just came in that day or maybe we had a day to rehearse, but normally it's not as I'm not, I can't, you can't really afford to have like really good session musicians on deck for a week in a, in a shitty rehearsal room trying to get it all together. Right. They, you're paying them to be in the room right now and react to the music right now and do their thing. So all I'm saying is that when you're producing an artist versus first in your band, I, I tend to be more absorbed with details and less out capturing um, something quick. That's more of a impulse, you know? Um, you have a preference? Oh yeah. I'd say I definitely prefer recording bands. Okay. Uh, it's by far more, um, also because I like the idea that sometimes a band can, can put their personality down on tape and then I can mess with that personality. I can like take the whole picture of what they gave me as the basic track and I can manipulate it and do things with it that they are surprised by and that are fun for me. Um, but yeah, I like the spirit of a band. I like the idea that there's like a history and people are in a room together and there's electricity, and there's tension and there's not, you know, I like that shit. That's like what I grew up on. Um, whereas with an artist, it's it's a bit more like, oh, well, here's here's the person that's playing drums for you. Oh, hi, nice to meet you. There's no, <laughs> there's I get no it. like, I get that. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Right? There's no like his, There's no history there. There's no like, um, yeah, I don't know. Tension is a word I'd use. So I, I like I like recording bands. Awesome. Let's move over to gear because uh, you have some. Very cool vintage basses, rare, cool basses. And uh, let's talk a little bit about it. How, first, why the uh, fascination with short scale basses? I just like that rubbery tone, man. Yeah. I just dig that like slightly hollow. The, the, the series of harmonics over each note is a little different. There's less fundamental sometimes depending on where you are in the neck. You know this. Yes. And then the harmonic series that you kind of pull apart with your ear that you hear, uh, who knows what it is. I, you'd have to like look at it, you know, and, and with some equipment or something to see what it is. But what I'm saying is, you, you know, you can hear it immediately. And you're like, ah, that's that certain, <clears throat> I don't know, sometimes cardboardy, rubbery tone that's um, just charming. I don't know. I, I dig that. I dig the, the idea. And I like the way that I like the way that your hand bends the strings differently. I like, the, I like the feeling of awkward, slightly pitchy, you know, there's just, I don't know. There's like extra sauce in there, man. There's it's like spicier sometimes, it's a, you know, it's a vibe for sure. I actually have one of your signature bases. That oh my God. Yes. Family. I love nice. this bass, the uh, the Mustang, but I play this actually you, quite often. I actually played that on one of the Suicidal Tendencies um, records. 
Um, Amazing. Yeah. And it, it, it kills. So I love that bass. Um, Man, I'm stoked. I'm so stoked. You like it. Yeah. And by the way, if, if people go over to your Instagram, they can see some pretty, pretty, uh, pretty serious damage that you've done with it, man. You, oh. you wreck that thing, man. You, you are incredible. <laughs> Thank I you, wish man. I could play oh, like that, you. Oh, stop. I, I appreciate the compliment. Uh, it means so much coming from you. Um, so how did you become a collector of some of these awesome bass that you have and, and what, which one is your favorite? I, I don't know. I mean, how does one start collecting gear? I don't know. You just like land on one thing and it's. Was it something that you maybe just were like, Oh, I have this, but Oh my God, what's that? I need that. Oh, that shit is cool. What, what's yeah. next? Is it like sure. domino effect? <laughs> it's a, it's a domino effect. It's pretty, it's pretty un, unforgiving and you have to prepare yourself for a long, crazy ride. Um, the first like really nice, cool vintage thing I bought is a bass called a Vox Cougar, which is like a hollow body short scale from the sixties, super skinny neck made in Italy, single coil pickups, hums and buzzes like hell. Um, but man, the tone, I recorded this Beck album called mutations with it. Yes. And it was one of the first vintage short scale hollow bodies it is the first vintage short scale hollow body i ever bought and the strings had no sustain and there you know, the note is just like this long it's like doom like maybe like a quarter note and a half max that's all you get yeah um and i just was like and but but then you when you palm mute it and you're plucking it or when you're thumbing it and you're getting like that like like it's so uprighty or it's so clicky either way I just fell in love with that, especially being a fan of like French pop from the sixties and seventies, Serge oh, cool. Gainsbourg, Franz Gall, um, like a- any, any classic French pop, it was always the tonality of the bass, very appealing to me. And that was the starting gun. Right. And I have Beck to thank for getting me into that headspace. And once I got into that, I was just like, Oh man, there's, there's other ones and they're, they're affordable all right, so what's this other guy? And then like, I would chase down other weirdo hollow bodies mainly because that became the first thing I started collecting, you know? Um, and I have so many now. I mean, it's just nuts, but what, a what favorite you- shit, I don't know. I mean, my my favorite bass is probably like my 66 Mustang that the signature is based off of, but oh. also I have a 66 P bass that I play all the time with really ancient flats. What do you um, have out with you right now? So I have my 75 root beer P bass. That's like my other favorite bass. Okay. I always have that set up with round wounds and it's real bright and it's real nasty and it's mid range city. It's just like, ah, it just screams at you, you know? <laughs> I love it. Um, love it. That's, I love that damn bass so much. Um, I have, my Hoffner Club, which is an, another hollow body that I use all the time. I love that bass so much with those pyramid strings. Um, uh, 70s Gibson Grabber, uh, a um, two JMJ Mustangs, a, a blue one that has flat wounds, a black, no, sorry, a blue one that has round wounds, a black one that has flat wounds, so I can have both types of dark and bright kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I think there's one more. Oh, yeah, my... Guild Starfire, which is a hollow body that um, has been a favorite of mine for years, and it's the main bass I've used, I think, on like Beck's Mutations album. It's also the bass on, like, for instance, you mentioned Sex Laws. That that sound is that bass, and that bass is still hanging in there, and and it's on the road with me right now. Yeah, love that one. Killer. What about amps? Oh man, I'm an amp. I'm an amp guy through and through. Um, I, I think I'll be pretty sad the day that I'm on a gig where they're like, yo, you have to use a camper. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. I don't want to do that either. Right. I, I just, just uh, say no, just say no. No offense. I don't camper. know, man. It's, 
I don't know. I mean, I, I use a camper in the studio sometimes for demoing and for getting ideas. And I, th- I find it really useful for a guitar, for instance. But um, anyway, I'm, I'm not mad at that. It's just that for me, I can't do it. I, so right now on the road, I'm using this Sun Head. It's a 2000S. It's like from 1971. It's ancient. Just went, it just was redone. It sounds fucking beautiful with a 215 cabinet because I'm obsessed oh, with 15s. 215. I got to get into 15s, man. I really do. That's my, that's really my thing. 15s are my thing. But, but what are you missing out of your tens that you would want in a, that you'd want? Like, why would you, your sound is seems dialed, but what are tens not giving you, for instance? I think that the 15s could add some of, some of just the girth, some of the jumbo that I, I, I want to feel. I I like the 10, I use refrigerators, eight tens, but, um, I I feel like, I feel like, I can stand to thicken it up a little bit. Okay. Well, like for instance, when I'm playing a hollow body or a short scale through the 15s, that's exactly, that's exactly the thing because it seems to give me just that pillowy round, beautiful, creamy low end, you know, Uh but also 15s have this spikiness on top. That's kind of cool because it sits right in the attack zone. It's not bright, and it's probably for a lot of people not bright enough, but it's like that 4K, 5K, like just spanky bright, you know, low okay. treble, the gotcha. low treble zone. Yeah, yeah. It's just aggro, you know? I, I love, love it. that. I love it, too. I am I am a huge fan of just nasty. I, I Oh, I, I know you are. You really are. <laughs> I I just dig just ugh, growl and just experimentation, you know. Um, so, uh, so you mostly play flats, strings. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's two bases that have flat. There are three bases that have flats and two that have rounds. Okay. And I play the two that have rounds maybe more in the show right now than with St. Vincent. So I, I don't know. I mean, is there a, guess, is there a particular brand that you use? Uh, yeah. I use Daddario Chromes like okay. crazy. But the thing is, is that I have bases with all kinds of other stuff on them. I have like, um, I've got this new base, um, a short scale that just came called a Wilcock that I don't have oh, out I, on the road with me, but it's just a, I saw that picture that you posted of that. It was very cool. Yeah, but that just has Dunlop flats on it, and it sounds great. Um, and then there's other bases I have that have ancient ass, like labellas. There's like bases that have pyramids. I mean, I don't. I generally just try not change them. So if there's a base with flats around that I bought, and it's like a vintage base, I don't know what it has on it. <laughs> that works as long as it works. Yeah, that's great, man. Um, what advice, uh, oh, no, no, let's talk about effects. Cause I know you love some effects as well, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty cuckoo for that stuff. What do you, what are your go-tos or what are your favorites? Oh man. I, I don't really have go-tos, but like, I love phaser on bass. So like I'm, I, you know, in the studio, I use like an old Mutron biphrase, like the big purple guy, you okay. know? Yeah. I, I use that thing all the time. Um, and, but there's some modern equivalents that are cool that actually fit on a pedal board. I use phaser a lot. I use tons of dirt. I mean, I have like, man, like right now on the tour that I'm on, I, I have like five different, maybe no, I have six different layers of like dirt and drive and stuff. So, and and you're combining them for different textures or are you, yeah, I combine them or I, or I use them like one bass will use one that's just for it and then or a certain song and then two of them are fuzzes you know so i don't know there's this the 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 main go-to pedal for me is this pedal by way huge and it's called a pork it's called a pork and pickle i love that pedal i have one too oh you know oh you have pedal okay cool you know that i mean man it doesn't you know how like it became really trendy for like bass drives to have lots of tone controls like bass mids treble and stuff yeah yeah this this doesn't this doesn't have that it just has tone it's like old school but <laughs> what's cool about it is i never i'm never lacking low end 
I'm never feeling like it saps any low end out. Right. And so mm -hmm. because of that, I feel like it's just uh, such a useful weapon. Um, I had heard by the way, that that pedal has switches inside that you can change some settings. Do you know if that's true? Uh, there's some extra switches inside. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is true actually. Okay. I've never opened I've never up. I, yeah. I've never opened, uh, I haven't done any surgery on it, but, um, yeah. I, I've heard that. Yeah, that is true. I can confirm. Any <laughs> nice. So that pedal's great. Like for instance, I have one of those on my board that's set to drive, and then one of them set to fuzz. Because uh, I you like have two. Uh, you like fuzz or overdrive better? Mm, I uh, there's no better. I just use them both all the time. Okay. Um, and and I have a signature fuzz that I made with that company Moleco. Oh, cool. It's called the Diabolic, and it's kind of based on. Um, a pedal that they did previous to that called the 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 Ass Master, and then one before that called the Brass Master. Um, cool. What are the differences? Yeah. Well, the Brass Master is a pedal from the seventies that was made by, I believe, Maestro. Okay. And it's a really cool fuzz because it has this uh, this um, it has like almost an a. a a cutoff envelope in it. So in other words, it's very touch sensitive. And as you play, as you dig into it, it feels like it's going and it kind of opens up the top okay. end as you play with a heavier dynamic. With a sort of fil filter-esque, maybe? You barely, you can barely perceive it. It's okay. barely there, right. but it's it's kind of there and it's baked into the sound. And so they made a large pedal called the Ass Master that was an homage to the Brass Master, Got it. which I used like live with the Nine Inch Nails and stuff. And then we were trying to figure out like, how do we make a small one that fits on people's pedal boards that's like good for bass? So we made this like a bunch of years ago and um, it ended up being pretty successful actually. And, and it, it's on my board all the time. It's a nasty, nasty nasty thing man it's dirty it's so filthy um <laughs> and it has it has way too much gain so in other words like i have the knobs barely on and it's loud it's so loud um so it's a it's a nasty beast nice. that's always going on i really like phase and chorus man i just i use phase and chorus a lot i use delay and reverb a lot i use a lot of pedal of pedals that are quote unquote more of the guitar domain but i've always rejected that idea i use pitch shifting i use like the the whatever i use all kinds of shit i the my favorite chorus pedals i have three and i will tell you about them right now okay um and two two of them are unattainable and one of them is attainable all right, right. they are here they are and i love chorus on bass it probably all started with peter hook and but here it goes the number one chorus pedal for me is the um, the Electroharmonics Holy, uh, sorry, not the Holy Grail, the um, the uh, Clone Theory, and the Clone Theory. If you find one, they're pricey and it may not work for long because there's some parts that to repair those that are unobtainium at this point. Okay, but it is the it is the sickest chorus there is. But there is a pedal that there's two pedals that kind of do that, that sound. One is um, a pedal from Japan company called Providence and they make a pedal called the Anadyma, which is uh, the Anadyme bass chorus, which sounds incredible, but that is hard to get super expensive, kind of unattainable. Can't even get them in the U S wow. there's another pedal. And, and by the way, yeah, this is the, this is the one for me because it's affordable and it has lots of controls. It's the MXR bass chorus. Yes. And the blue one, it's phenomenal. And it, frankly, it has that Peter Hook character. It can do the clone theory sound. It's so damn good. So those are my top three. And I use chorus a lot. And then I use an Empress phaser. I love that phaser. And I use also my other favorite phaser is a, uh, that's on my board is a Van Halen one, the phase 90 with the Van Halen oh, yeah. Yeah. stripes on it. Yeah. yeah. It's really good for, it's really good for bass. So sick, dude. I love it. Do you have? Anyway, I, I could I could go on about that shit forever because I just have I like I have hundreds of pedals and I love it. But anyway, I'll leave it at that. That's sort of the general idea. Okay. You know. I mean, that's a ton of great information, and uh, I think some inspiration for people listening as well. What uh, nice. What advice would you give uh, some young bass players out there listening, or any bass players out there listening? I think that, um, it's it's pretty vital that you 
um, have flexibility. And I don't think that, I think that like maybe in the eighties, someone could just be a rock bass player and maybe <laughs> that was all they did, you know? Yeah. Um, I think over time that's really borne out to be really, uh, not a viable career path as a bass player. I think that you have to be flexible. I think that people just saying like, well, I just do R and B. Um, I just do R and B and funk and that's what I do. I think that thankfully I'm seeing a lot of people stepping away from that lane and becoming a lot more like earnestly absorbing the music of other genres, not just as a musician, but as a listener, as a music fan. Um, it's really important for bass players to be music fans and to be music fans of lots and lots of music with lots of range, because that's how you will inform a broader taste and a broader taste in this world will get you a lot further. In my opinion, the other thing is that like, it's easier for me to say that I'm not necessarily a technical bass player because some people would say I am a technical bass player, but I'm certainly not. I'm not a shreddy, very um, studied or sophisticated bass player. Uh, there's many, 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 many bass players, many of them just all over social media, for instance, that makes a living seemingly just living on there that can play circles around me. And that's, and that's the truth. And um, I'm not, I'm not, there's no, competing in that world it's just just too much talent there's too much raw skill that's show that's showing itself and i would just urge bass players to be like yo that's that's cool if you want a career in social media but like i don't know if you're gonna like go play with saint vincent or whoever like because you're like a youtube star right you know or whatever or because you post sick videos in Instagrams and Instagram have a million followers because you're like super technical or whatever. Like people hire you because of your heart. They hire you because of your heart. They hire you because of your, of, uh, of, and of the taste that is informed by your heart. And that's the stuff that matters. That's the long haul stuff. That's the long distance running. So, you know, sure practice and sure you know have a skill set that sets you apart but also like be a sophisticated music listener it'll get you farther than anything else to be honest i'm mm -hmm. i'm telling you this from very personal experience if you're a sophisticated music listener and can understand every reference that's thrown at you and even supply your own references that might contribute to the same conversation, say with a producer or an artist, you're way ahead of the game. And it's, 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 it's much more important than, um, you know, how shreddy you are or whatever. Like, it's just, you, you know, that dude, you know, all about this. It's not a competition. You're not playing something from the standpoint of an athletic pursuit. It's soul based. It's heart and soul based. I know that when I see it, I saw that in you. It's obvious that you're one of those players that is, that is thinking of it and feeling it strictly from heart and soul. You're not trying to fucking do push-ups with your base. <laughs> you know, you're not lifting weights with your base. You're reacting musically and instinctively. So that's the stuff that gets you much further down the road than you could otherwise. So I just urge people to think in those terms, think about the, your musical bibliography. Think about, is there an area that I'm ignoring that I might find something to like in that I'm maybe just too much, I'm too ignorant of because of whatever reason, and maybe I should dip my toe in there because who knows that might help me someday. Hmm. Man, I'm just going to go ahead and leave that all right there because that is <laughs> some awesome truth right there that you're throwing out there. 
<laughs> I appreciate cool. you, man, for uh, for being on here. Is there anything coming up that you're excited about that you want to let everybody know about or that you're working on? Well, I'm finishing a record that I can't say anything about. And mm. yeah, I'm really excited about it. Okay. So, okay. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing that, whatever it is. Yeah, whatever it is. Um, so it's just something I'm working on right now. But but um, other than that, my plans are to like, I've got all kinds of random stuff with Annie, with St. Vincent coming up. And, you know, I, I people come out and see us because it's, it's sick. It's, there's, it's pretty sweet because it's, I put this band together very much from the musician's mind mind frame. Like it's it's extremely old school. There's no samples, there's no tracks, there's no nothing. It's just raw musicianship. And Mark Giuliana on drums, I mean, come on, it's yeah. so insane. So I, I you know, and Jason Faulkner on guitar, Rachel Eckroth on keys, it's really, really deep. And Annie's such an incredible guitar player man, I, people are seeing it and being like, what? Like, cause it's almost like you don't see that kind of thing too often, you know? I got to see that. Especially in, yeah. Especially in kind of that sort of like general alternative rock world. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It's nice. Um, so we're, I'm doing that. We got dates next year. Hope people come out and see it. There's, there's stuff popping. We're going to play more. And, uh, thankfully until someone says you can't tour anymore, (laughs) we're touring and i'm really i'm really grateful because there's a lot of people that are not are not touring right now and not haven't gone out yet or maybe started and had to go home so you know for now we're cool and um i'm really grateful and i I hope to see some some people out there you know right on dude uh i'm grateful that you uh gave us your words of wisdom and and advice um yeah i'm i'm kind of uh at a loss for words right now that i I appreciate you, man. Um, oh man. Thank you so much, Josh. I really appreciate that. That's very kind. I I'm just trying to speak my personal truth about stuff and I'm glad you let me come on here and do that. You know, I I'm, I'm thankful for you. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Stay healthy and kind, spread love, good vibes and inspiration. And remember you got this, follow your path and just play. I'm Josh Paul. Hope to see you all out there sometime soon. And thank you to Dunlop for making this show possible. And make sure you check out Bass Freaks wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. Cheers.